you're very welcome to the first edition of the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. First up, I think it will be useful to briefly outline the journey that I've been on, the one that has led me to this point. Like many of you, I've been on a, a golf tragic for most of my life. However, for the longest time, I only saw the game through the lens of my own experiences and biases. Over the past few years, I have been fortunate to experience a number of golfing epiphanies. Most recently, during a trip to the Melbourne Sandbelt, which was truly life-changing. This experience, and the additional time that the COVID-19 lockdown afforded all of us, sent me spiralling down a number of golf-related rabbit holes, including golf course design and setup, the evolution of golf clubs and equipment, the wider game of golf versus the professional game, greenkeeping and agronomy, golf history and how it relates to the now and the trajectory of travel that the game is currently on. The deeper I've delved into these topics, the more it became clear to me that I really did not know as much as I thought I did. To use a phrase from Donald Rumsfeld, unknown unknowns if you like. Through reading, listening and discussing these unknowns, I've changed my outlook on many things in golf. This podcast is an attempt to share this journey in an effort to question where the great game of golf has come from and indeed where it is headed. The show will attempt to introduce you, the audience, to this journey. It's not about the host per se, but more so about the quality of guests that we plan to showcase. If we can introduce you to different questions and alternative viewpoints that make you think and ask your own questions, then we will have succeeded in developing our collective golfing IQs. We are very pleased to announce that upcoming guests will include renowned former golf professional commentator, course designer and serial podcaster Michael Clayton, award-winning writer and historian Roger McStravick, Matt Malika from the Rollback Alliance, Japan-based Andrew Thompson, Andrew is the son of five times Open champion Peter Thompson, Mike Cocking, one of the principals of the design firm Ogilvy Cocking and Mead, head of the USGA Education Department George Waters, Clyde Johnson of Cunn Golf. Clyde is currently working in the ground on the creation of the Renaissance-designed Te Arai Links in New Zealand. We are also very excited to have confirmations from both the developer of the Seven Mile Beach Golf Course in Hobart, Tasmania, Matt Goggin, and indeed from Lucas Michel. Lucas is the former US Mid-Am champion. He's cutting his teeth as we speak on a bulldozer, shaping up the Seven Mile Beach property under the tutelage of the great Mike DeVries. Today's guest is Ali McIntosh, an accomplished course designer in his own right. I'm also pleased to tell you that Ali has agreed to be a regular contributor. This sample guest list represents but a few of the quality guests that we have already lined up, and through them we hope to journey on a road less travelled. We hope you come along for the ride. From a housekeeping perspective, it is our intention to initially post fortnightly as we get up to speed with the demands of this exciting medium. Truth be told, we are learning as we go, and we would ask you to bear with us as we find our voices, as it were. We would ask you to suspend what you think you know for a minute, and listen to what we hope would be wide-ranging, informative discussions with important voices in the golf industry. You don't have to agree with us. However, as the great golf designer Alistair McKenzie said, golf is a game, and talk and discussion is all to the interest of the game. Anything that keeps the game alive and prevents us from being bored is an advantage. Anything that makes us think about it, talk about it, and dream about it is all to the good of the game and prevents the game becoming dead. Enough of my ramblings, it's time for introductions. I may be joined on this verbal adventure by the caddy guy and Bally Bunyan native, my co-host James Sheehy. Hey James. 
Hi, Shane, and hello, one and all. James, maybe you can tell me why you're here and a bit about yourself. But before you start, you might just tell the good people where they can find us in the main social channels. Well, for our Twitter, we have our handle is at Firm and Fast Golf. Our Instagram is at Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. Why I'm here is a very good question. A brief synopsis of my golf life reads thusly. At a very young age, I was left to play with my babysitter's clubs around the lawn, which resulted in me losing some old balladas in the bushes. My first real experience of golf came through the Irish Open when it was held in Ballybunion. My parents brought me on the Sunday where we followed the then defending champion, a young and volatile Sergio Garcia, as he flittered away his overnight leave. My friends started caddying shortly after, and I followed suit in the pursuit of pocket money. Visitors would comment that you have a lovely office, but it took me a while to register what they truly meant. Then I had my eureka moment. Then I understood what was before me. And given my curious nature, I wanted to learn more. I've had the opportunity to play courses both in Ireland and abroad. And with improvements in my own game, I wanted to answer the questions the architects asked of me. The what, the why and the how each venue affords. Luckily, in recent times, I've gotten to know Shane and we are kindred spirits of the God tragic variety and both share love of the game and we should delve deeper into the intricacies involved. As stated, we would dearly love for you to join us in exploring more on this journey and the more the merrier. Thanks, James. That leaves us only, only one thing left to do, obviously to get cracking with today's episode, featuring our good friend Ali McIntosh. Today, today's episode is loosely, or very loosely titled Golf Architecture 101. But first, a little intro from Ali himself. Ali, perhaps you can give us a bit of background on yourself and how you got into golf, became an honorary Irishman, and ultimately a practicing golf course designer. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, James. Good to be on. And uh, hopefully I can help bring a, a little bit of further knowledge to your listeners. We'll see how it goes anyway. So, yeah, my name is Ali McIntosh. Originally, and my background is engineering, and I still am involved in engineering, but I was always um, interested and wanted to be a golf course designer. You know, I sketched, like a lot of us, right? I sketched golf courses when I was 12, 13, 14, did imaginary routings. Then I came to go to college, thought about how to be a golf course designer, decided that the only way in was to be a professional golfer, you know, and you, you flip like that, age 17, and I flipped, right? And I went, ah, well, there's no course in it, so I'll just put it to the side at the moment. I'm not Jack Nicholas. Let's move on. So I went away, I did my engineering, worked a bit in engineering, came back, and then, you know, in my early 30s, realized that, look, I, mean, I still want to do this. I still really want to do this. Matured a bit, so looked into different ways of doing it uh, and realized that I could get in through the European Institute of Golf Course Architecture at the time, did a, an education program. So, you know, it wasn't easy to get through that, but I was lucky enough through knowledge, keenness, enthusiasm to, to be accepted. They, they took about 10 people on every two years. And I went through that. And that was really the start of me then getting into to golf course design. And as I say, that was in my early mid thirties. Um, and I came out of that in 2009, did a bit of freelance work and then uh, got a couple of good early opportunities under my own name. And away we go, I suppose. I moved to, I'm Scottish originally, as you can tell, Shane, um, as you know, right. Uh, but I moved to Ireland in, in 99, uh, 2000. So I've been here 20 years, 21 years. So as you say, I, I do feel like a, an honorary Irishman now. In fact, watching the rugby yesterday, I wasn't sure if I was shouting for Ireland more or Scotland, you know, on Saturdays. So yeah, I'm, I'm here for good, married to an Irish woman, Irish kids. Can't see myself leaving, really. Well, you made a great choice. Must be said. Yeah, although your Bonnie Scotland is very good for, for golf too, must be said. So I guess maybe an easy question to start off, Ali. What's golf architecture? 
<laughs> I, just, I was wondering what you might come up with first and uh, you call that easy, do you? What is golf? Well, I think, look, in really simple terms, golf architecture is about taking the most out of a piece of land to provide the most enjoyment for, for golfers. And it really is about enjoyment. It's getting the best golf course out of a piece of land. And that's not always as easy as it seems. There, there are good pieces of land and there are bad pieces of land. That's it. You, you do the best job possible to get, to, get, to get the best result for the most amount of return, the most amount of fun for golfers. And I guess the, the follow-up question would be, is it important or why is it important? Why, why is it important? Well, yeah, I mean, of course it's important. It, if it wasn't, we'd end up with a bunch of, you know, not to disparage anyone, but a bunch of Dublin mountains. So for your listeners who don't know, you know, a relatively simple golf course designed locally and a, and a good job done, designed on a low budget, but, but really without that, let's say, je ne sais quoi, that little bit of pizzazz that makes good or great golf courses great golf courses. So, you know, there's a lot goes into golf course architecture. Everyone fancies themselves an amateur golf course architect. Some people would be intuitively and naturally good at it, some less so, but everyone has an opinion. Um, but there's a lot that goes in to make a good or a great golf course. James is going to like this question. You mentioned in intuitively good at something. I've certainly heard Tom Doak speak of his time caddying uh, on his year away in St. Andrews. And obviously part of that time he spent traveling around the rest of the time he spent caddying at the old course. Yeah. And he, um, he, he tells a story uh, on uh, Andy Johnson's uh, the fried egg podcast. And he reckons that caddies would make great golf course architects. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I look, I think for Tom, right. And we, I think the three of us, we don't often realize how lucky we are growing up in Ireland or Scotland and, and being able to play links golf courses or, or grow up on them. Because, you know, for Tom or for Pete Dye before him or for others, it, it was that visit over to, to Great Britain and Ireland that really opened their eyes. They hadn't seen anything like links golf, which is the original form and really what everything is modeled on. So from that point of view, we're incredibly lucky. Does a caddy make a better? Could a caddy make a better golf course? Like, wait, did, did Tom say anything more with that, Shane? Or how did he back that up? Or, or well, James, I, I, maybe ask you back. Do you think a caddy makes a better candidate for a golf course architect? I think because of the myriad of people that you deal with. I mean, you're looking at plus and scratch players, and you're looking at people that may only play once or twice a year. So you're getting a broad spectrum of how the course is played. Yeah. So they, that well, I think. I think to Tom's point, there is something to that because, look, we could, you could just, it's a bit like in soccer or any sport for that matter, where you think, okay, ex-former player used to be a stalwart of the club, comes in, manages the club, but the players don't get the message. He just assumes that, well, I used to be very good, so they should be good by proxy. So I think there's something to Tom's point of when you see what, the broad range people and how they tackle the course. And I think like you right. get way more insight into it. I think you're right, James. That that you know serious advantage of knowing a course inside out that you know any caddy does, and seeing so many players play that and all the nuances, and particularly when you're talking about links golf, you know you at Valley Bunyan or Tom mm. talked about the old course. Suddenly you're seeing all of these little humps and hollows. How the smallest things can affect the ball, affect the shot. And it really does, it really does or, or should throw ideas into your head about if you were a golf course designer, you know, about 
I, I could use that. You know, I could use this little thing that I've seen or or all of this experience I've taken. So I, I kind of get where Tom was coming from there. For the visitors to come over, they only get to, it's normally like bucket list stuff. So they only get to play the course once, maybe twice if they're lucky. But like in comparison, the caddies there day in, day out, like rain or shine, not really big enough for our, um, our professionalism, but you get to see like just the, the little nuances of like, okay, this guy, he's not so hot with his driver or whatever. Let's try and use a certain part of the hole to help him get long. And like a lot of times they're happy out getting their bogeys and just saying they did blast and other ones in to come over. Okay. I expect to make a score. So it's like, okay, well, we have to take on a lot more in that regard. Yeah. So how do we facilitate that? Just going back in, in time a little bit, Ali, maybe just explain to the listeners golf architecture, golf design. I know you've got a, a thought on that. How did it begin and evolve? Well, I suppose look, going back to the, the real simple way of looking at it, before there was such a thing as golf course design or golf course architecture, people invented the sport. And they really just invented the sport by picking up a ball or a stone or whatever at the beginning, right? And actually just trying to hit a feathery from one place to the next. And I think often just pick the most natural route, always on the links, right? Uh, right at the beginning and always on the links because it provided the best surface. They weren't obviously cutting grass at the time. Um, the rabbits were keeping things down. You know, vegetation was low through the winter, so they would play uh, on the on the links. That was the 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 area that they could could do it easiest. And you know, over time, they probably just played to the most fun holes at the time. Let's hit over this dune there. Let's go down this valley here. And over time, of course, human intervention comes in, and you go, well, maybe wouldn't that be better fun if it looks like this or if the shot does this for me. And I think the first real kind of golf course architecture or, or golf course design build, let's say, was, you know, or, or often talked about was the road hole green by Alan Robert, Robertson in, uh, in, I think, 1848, but, uh, the, you know, the, around the mid 1800s. Uh, and he uh, to, built the, the old course green then, or the 17th, uh, the road hole green. And from there, it developed. You had old Tom Morris as well. The old course, as I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners will know, really just played out and back in one route at the time. Um, it had 22 holes. That was reduced to 18. Uh, but it was really just out one way and back along the exact same track. And they then cleared the gorse. And whilst they kept the double greens, uh, they really had two fairways, one going out and one going back. So these were all the very early starts for, for golf course architecture. And it, and it moved on from there. I mean, I could keep on going, Shane, and if you wish me to. Or you could ask me a, a, a specific question around how it developed from there. Yeah, I, I suppose it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, obviously, Alan Robertson was a precursor to old Tom, who uh, I believe was keeper of the greens and, and a golf pro as well. So in many ways, old Tom was the inventor of greenkeeping as well. I understand he was first... Uh, first person to top dress actually which is obviously putting sand on on the on the on the pudding surface yeah. to make them a little bit smoother well well you're going back you're right though the, the first architects or the first designers were of course the greenkeepers they were the professionals at the time the golfers were the gentlemen the amateurs but the professionals were the greenkeepers 
the guys that earn money from it and they were the natural ones to start um, doing some of that that first early design and as, as you say there was Alan Robinson old Tom fell out with him at St Andrews and went over to Prestwick uh, where he was keeper of the green for ages before he came back to, to St Andrews in, in later years so you know old Tom really I think became the first prolific golf course architect the one the first one who's associated with a bunch of courses that we still play today and go, yeah, that was designed by old Tom or old Tom had a hand in that. I understand that he was perhaps, I guess, as the profession grew, old Tom would probably have come along for a day or two, maybe put a few stakes out and kind of left the members or the, the landowners to their own devices in terms of actually building a golf course or recommending what they might do. Uh, would that would, would that be the, have been the case? Yeah, I think I think a few of the early architects were a little bit like that, right? The 18 stakes on a Sunday afternoon refers primarily to Tom Bendelow, who was one of the, was a Scots guy who actually went over the States and was one of the first early golf course architects over in the in the US. But it does apply to many architects where they actually just rooted the very basic skeleton of a golf course. Here's a good place for a green site, or here's 18 good places for a green site. Um, and then either let the course develop naturally or as you say yourself members over time uh, uh, or other people associated with the golf club would gradually put a little bit more shape when i say shape i mean more what we see as a golf course today those kind of shapes around uh, the, the golf course and that would develop over time so yeah some of the early golf architects were almost a half day job you know or a full day job as we move into the uh, the 1900s, many of the early professional designers were were very good amateur golfers, the likes of Colt and his contemporaries. I guess many of these guys had other initial careers, such as law, medicine, banking, etc. How or why did they get into this designing co- courses and essentially becoming professional? Well, why I guess is the same as uh, me or. Tom Doak, right, or anyone, which is just kind of wide-eyed wonder of like, sure, you can't get a better job than this, can you? You know, like there's a there's a huge enjoyment about if, if you're into golf and it, particularly if you're into golf courses, because not every golfer is kind of obsessed with golf courses, then you really enjoy the land and 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 want to get involved with it. A lot of these guys came from other means, right? They came from moneyed backgrounds in the first place, so. They didn't have to rely on their early forays into golf course design to, let's say, pay the mortgage. So it enabled them to to get into get into the design. But look, you, you can see from the early writings of some of the golden age architects how much enjoyment they got out of it, how much fun there was in designing strategic golf holes or different kinds of golf holes. And we've maybe lost a little bit of that in recent years or certainly through the late half of the 20th century anyway I think we've seen a lot of fun come back into some of the, the new builds in the last 20 years. Are you suggesting that perhaps golf's become a bit too sanitized or, or, or homogenized or? I think golf course design became sanitized and homogenized to a degree right I think again when you read some of those early um, golden age books the variety in the kind of design of golf holes they were looking at strategic design was was huge but as with everything, as, as things go on, people get a perception, you know, and when I say people, I mean golfers, administrators, I mean everyone, they get a perception of how a golf course could look, should look like. And, and it narrows, the, the perception narrows as time goes on. And I think that happened through the 20th century. 
um, or through the second half of the 20th century, where there was a lot of similar style golf courses being designed, champ let's say championship length golf courses, similar kind of schemes, similar kind of look, less variety. And I think as we got to the end of the 20th century with some of the good sites being discovered again, and, so, and a lot of that was to do with poor sites as well, but as it, some of the better sites were, were discovered again, and the, vir the, the second wave of virtuoso architects, let's call them that, Bill Coor, Tom Doak particularly, because I think those two, off the back of Pete Dye, um, those two led the Renaissance, and of course Tom, Tom named his company Renaissance as well, and they brought a more modern and welcome, enjoying, fun, strategic look at the game again, I think. I like how you mentioned that there and like that the golden age architects had a sense of a spirit of adventure, if you will. Yes. And since then, we've become so accustomed to maybe through TV, say about homogenizations where the fair was getting narrow, rough gets deeper, more water gets applied. In relation to that, that's one thing for to challenge like a scratch golfer. But is that really fair in someone who is trying to enter the game? Like, should we, shouldn't we find a way again of giving them the spirit of adventure to find their pathway into the game? And how would you go about doing that? Yeah, that's a good point, James. Right. So again, I, I think we go back to the golden age, right? So the golden age of uh, of architecture really kicked off in the very early 1900s, and in some ways ran through to the Second World War. And why did it finish the Second World War? Well, you've gone, you've gone through the Depression, first of all, then you went through war. And then just coincidentally, or naturally, I guess, through evolution, many of the, the, the virtuoso pioneer architects just died, right? They had got to a certain age or they stopped practicing. So by the time you came out of the Second World War, you kind of had a new breed of golf course architect. It was Robert Trent Jones in there. He had first uh, worked for Stanley Thompson. But he came in and he had a new, as you would expect, uh, he had a new outlook and a new look on the on how to design golf courses. And he was more so about challenge, right? About difficult golf courses. It was a very diff different way to look at golf course design. And I think that continued and it made it harder. So to your point, it made it very much a harder game for beginners. It was more about the low handicapper. It was more about the professional. It was more about the, the challenge. And, you know, Trent Jones, he altered quite a few US Open courses, the Open Doctor, as he was known at the time. But if you go back to McKenzie, right, and McK Alistair McKenzie and his points where he, he figured there shouldn't be many forced carries. You should almost be able to pop from the tee to the green because it enables the beginner or anyone to, to have a chance to get round. And that's really what basic strategic golf is. It, it says, we'll let anyone get round here, but you have to think your way around and you have to make sure you are taking on hazards if you want easier neck shots. And I think that's the key. Make it strategic rather than just make it penal. And penal golf is really telling the golfer, you have to do this. And if you don't manage it, you're going to fail and we're going to penalize you. Ali, I'm just wondering, in your, your mind, is it necessary to be a good golfer or a great golfer to be a great designer? No, I don't think it's necessary to be a great golfer. Let's put it that way. I think it's necessary. I think going back to Tom's point, right, and what James came back on, if James had never played golf, but he'd caddied for his whole life, he probably would have an, 
inkling and an intuition into what makes good golf holes, right? Or what, what golf holes do. But I think in real terms, it's better to be able to at least visualize good shots and understand how those good shots are played. So I think it is better if you can play golf to a certain standard. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean a plus handicap or a professional level. But I think you need to know what it is to, to be able to see a shot and try and try and hit that shot. Would it be uh, would it be too much of a stretch to say that you know your 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 own golfing tendencies would tend to influence your design output? Um, I think it, it does for some architects, right? And I think if you take like Jack Nicholas is famous for um, designing left to right dog legs or you know angled greens to receive his fade so you know whether he still does that i'm not sure you know it's become such a kind of piece of folklore and an anecdote uh, i need to look at some of his more recent courses and bearing in mind that he's got a number of architects that work for them anyway i think in general though it shouldn't do right it's um it shouldn't have an effect on you and you should be following, especially if you've got a half decent piece of land, you should be following the land and the land should be telling you what the golf holes do, not your own golf tendencies. Ali, you mentioned about like the origins of the game and like how it grew from St. Andrews. It still obviously has a very rich history and heritage of that. Like how is that maintained in many of the, the more luminary courses that we have? The, the heritage of, well... Yeah, just their nods to the past. And is that a good or a bad thing? Well, I, I think it depends whether you're talking about the golf club or the golf course. Uh, the uh, course in particular. Yeah, the, the golf course. Well, I feel, I, I certainly feel there are a number of courses out there that um, should, it's difficult to protect the golf course, right? But there are a number of golf courses out there that need a higher burden of proof to undergo changes um, because they, they represent a place in the game, whether it be through tradition or whether it be through just original architecture or an original example of something that should stop, you know, future generations being able to, let's say, come in and blow it up at least, you know, every golf course needs little tweaks here or there. It needs to develop to a certain degree. It needs to follow certain maintenance practices and all the rest of it. But generally speaking, we should be, looking at some of our more traditional and historic golf courses and saying, this doesn't need to change, or why does it need to change? Or you need to really prove to me why this needs to change, as opposed to just taking the word of the next person that comes in, or the next captain, or the next architect who says, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Because as I go back to earlier on, the different thing about golf course architecture is every golfer seems to have an opinion. Some golfers think they're a golf course architect, some, some don't, but almost everyone has an opinion and you don't get that in all professions although we are all becoming internet warriors and doctors <laughs> and the rest of it at the same time but you know you get it less so i think in in many other professions i guess Ali, maybe it, it's useful to to touch on what the difference is between course revisions renovations restorations and redesigns at this point how do you choose the right path is there a right path what do you think uh, well, okay, so in, in general definition terms, a restoration, like in building architecture, is restoring a course, right? returning it to some point in the past. And usually, usually that point is 
point that is nominally could be the, the starting point when it was first built, or it could be a point that's nominally where everyone agreed this course was at its most prestigious or best. So quite often the golden age architects came in, completely overhauled uh, a course that had been built 20 or 30 years previous and made a much better golf course out of it, right? And then what's happened is other architects have come in in the last 20, 30 years, they've renovated that, um, redesigned it, or it's just died through many committees, uh, death by a thousand cuts. So really, there's, there's a case to sometimes go in and restore golf courses to that original vision that the, the, the golden age architect had. What does restoring mean? Well, it doesn't usually mean going the whole hog. It doesn't mean let's get rid of the, the irrigation, let's have the conditions back to bumpy greens, let's have whatever. But it does mean put the bunkers back where they were, put them in the same style, you know, redo the greens if they've been blown up to the best approximation or photocopy of the original greens that were there designed by Cold or McKenzie or whatever. And it does mean put them in the original place. It doesn't mean I'm going to have poetic license here and make it just feel like the original course. So that's restoration. Renovation, on the other hand, is when you go into a golf course and you do develop it for, let's say more so for the modern game. So renovation might in, include moving bunkers um, because we now hit the ball 270, 290 yards instead of 210, 230 yards. That's not to say all bunkers should be at 270, 290, absolutely not. But renovation does include that. Renovation does include going in and making artistic changes to a golf course whilst leaving the original or more or less the original routing and skeleton of the golf course there. Ali, you mentioned about restoration renovation there. By all accounts, they're expensive endeavours too. But what's another expense that most uh, courses have to endure is greenkeeping and the agronomy of the course. So how would they influence the process of design work? Again, depends very much on um, who you're working for, I guess, and, and budget. But I, I think you always need to design with maintenance in mind. And particularly in some of the courses I, I work on because they haven't got huge budgets so we're you know we're always trying to, to bear in mind what it's going to mean for the greenkeeping crew uh, afterwards you could be really balchy about this as a designer and you could say i'm not going to compromise anything you know i'm going to go in and i'm going to do my design and whatever it takes to maintain you're just going to have to live with it but your clients aren't really going to like that you're being disingenuous if you end up leaving them with a golf course it's going to cost twice as much to maintain so you shouldn't really do that. And the truth of the matter is, I talk about compromise there, but you don't often have to compromise. By just working with the green staff, you know, you have a design solution that works for him and it's something that you can, you, that, that can work for you as well. Like, there's not much compromise there, but you should always design to an extent with maintenance in mind, you know, particularly for courses that, that budget is a concern. And there's not many courses where, where operating budget is not a concern, a concern you know. To that point, then people take their cues off what they see on TV, what they see on the tour. 
case in point is every April we get to watch the Masters. We get to see the azaleas in bloom. It's a beautiful shade of green. What has Augusta done in terms of having the requirements of some place that don't have that style of budget? And, but still have their members, they have the expectation of having a, an Augusta-style course. Yeah, well, Augusta, it's a funny one, isn't it? Augusta is, has done the greatest thing for golf and the worst thing for golf. And, you know, it's done, it's done great things because it brings golf, because people love the Masters. And so it brings golf to many people who are not that golf-oriented. You know, some people, the Masters is the only thing that they watch all year round. So keep people interested in golf but really on the flip side of that it's on the worst thing for golf course maintenance and golf course design because it makes everyone believe everyone want to copy them it makes everyone believe that pristine grass green pristine way of presentation is is what's needed and it's not good golf does not necessarily follow that model and it's certainly non-affordable for, for most courses. You know, that. let's be honest, the only course that really is up to Augusta presentation in, I would say, the entirety of Europe is, is the new Adair. Adair, mm -hmm. and, and we know that Adair compromise for nothing. We know they've a huge operating budget down there. And it's a beautiful, beautiful golf course that's kept very, very well. But it's out of reach for... 99.999% of the golf courses. So don't try and copy them, you know. Leading on from Adair, Shane and I are lucky enough to be members of Lynx courses where we don't have any trees to navigate around, but the majority of golfers in this country and most are Parkland players. So how does the effect of the game starting on Lynx but progressing to Parkland, how does that combine with having trees as a blockade instead of having rough? Like in terms of design, what did trees mean for you? Tree, <laughs> trees is a trees is a funny one. It's a kind of it's almost kind of a modern invention on golf courses where everyone in the modern day now thinks, gee, a Parkland golf course comes with with trees, you know, and trees add to it. But for me, for me in general, and of course, specimen trees are, are worthy to maintain. It's nice to have certain groups of trees. It, it adds color. It adds mix. It adds vegetation to some inland courses. But I get enjoyment from a visual and an aesthetic way, first of all, from actually seeing the topography of the land. So I like long views. I like seeing the golf course. I like understanding how that golf course unfolds. And if you, if you rely from an aesthetic point of view too much on trees, really, if you think about it, they're just avenues of trees. It, it, it becomes more samey rather than more variety. You're just looking at golf holes through trees. So that's just purely aesthetic. And that's, you know, that's my preference from that point of view. From a playability point of view and a maintenance point of view, trees, trees generally aren't good, right? They, they create, from a maintenance point of view, they create shade. Uh, so they stop sunlight uh, getting into your, your greens and your grass. They stop air getting in as well. So that causes a problem. From a playability point of view, they grow, right? So, you know, you might design a golf course and you've got a 60 yard wide fairway and semi rough and 20 years later you've still got 60 yards at the bottom but with all the branches up there you've only got 35 yards or 40 yards mm -hmm. so it actually takes away from that ability to play width and and shot values and and 
develop your game that point of view so i i'm not a big trees fan and a lot of the original courses augusta included you know they didn't have trees on them so you look back at the old uh, the old photographs of augusta and it was, a, it was an open open site a lot of trees got planted in the 50s and 60s people went a bit mad for the arbitorium you know i, I understand trees grow at about three percent per year so if you need the sums within 20 years of, of planting they they start to become a, an issue in inverted commas of, i know you scots call them bunkers in the sky um and and that uh the game of golf should be played around hazards on the ground not in the air and i think harry colt the golden age architect who was responsible for places like pine valley and sunningdale and royal port rush said trees should be part of the scenery not part of the stage would you agree with that yeah i I, I would in general. And I go as far as saying maybe even the scenery I'm not that keen on half the time as well, you know. Um, but as I say, look, specimen trees are are, are nice. Um, certainly on inland courses, links courses, they've really got not too much of a place, despite the fact we've got some some still in, in Port Marnock where, uh, where I play most of my golf. But... Corsican pines, of course, are, are indigenous to Ireland, aren't they? Yeah, I think yeah, you, you you may be maybe right there, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on, I mean, just just to touch on on the contemporary designer Tom Doak of Renaissance Design. He he has a thought that good shaping from a, a golf course perspective uh, costs the same as bad shaping. I guess first of all, maybe you might explain what shaping is, and uh, and what does Mister Doak mean by by saying good shaping costs the same as bad shaping? Yeah, of course. Uh, well. Shaping, I suppose if you look at a, go a, a golf course team, right, uh, golf course builders, let's put it that way, you, you know, you'll have the primary architect, you know, who is going to put the design together, the conceptual design, he's going to, he's going to run through then the basis of design, the strategy, the whole master plan for the course, and he's going to generally detail out what, what needs to be built. There's different methodologies. So, you know, there's a methodology where you use external contractors to build your golf course and the architect will do a lot more detailed drawings that you'll then issue out like a building architect to a contractor and they will build more or less the golf course. They will have a primary shaper in, in building that golf course and the shaper is, is really the person that interprets those detailed drawings and gets them into the ground as near enough as possible to the detailed drawings. But it, we're still talking about natural landscape and artistry. So they have an element, a small element of artistic license as they put natural shapes into the ground movement. Now, the other methodology is the one that Tom generally follows. And, you know, I'm a big believer in as well, particularly on, on good sandy sites for definite, is that you have the, the, the golf course shaper and the golf course builders are part and intricate with the the design team so really you're going into the field and a lot of the artistry you of course have to design the concept the basis the strategy and, and the general idea but a lot of the artistry and the final design and the detailed design happens in the field because you can't put things on a drawing that you see in the in the ground and the nuances of how things work with the land behind it or the landscape behind it or the scale so a lot of the, the best detail design and hence shaping is artistry and it happens in the field as you're building the golf course as opposed to on paper beforehand. 
You bring up go- um, golf course design as artistry, and clearly because you said earlier that you start off by sketching out holes, and you have your vision for it. But when you are another course designer, along with the shapers, come in, they're usually met by a committee, good or bad. What effect does a good or a bad committee have on the course design, the restoration, or anything to that effect? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can get golf courses built or get golf course renovations or restorations done. Obviously, if you're building a new golf course, the committee is not generally there in the first place. So you're just dealing with a developer or a client. But based on, you know, a lot of the work at the moment being renovation work or restoration work or redesign work with existing golf clubs and existing committees, then it really depends on individuals, James. Depends on, look, all committees have the, the best interest of the, of the course at heart, but usually they're better to, to find an architect, find partners that they trust, provide a guidance and a brief, but in many ways then let the architect uh, and the builders have, have enough artistic, well, not artistic license, but have, um, have the say in, in how to, to execute on that brief. I think where things tend to go wrong is sometimes where committees um, or certain committee members uh, are, are just adamant to, to get involved too much, you know, and, and it ends up sometimes compromising the design. I guess the nature of committees, they're cyclical, Ali, two, three years, and they, they're probably the first year, particularly Greens committees, maybe. First year, they're kind of find their feet. Second year, they know a little bit more and realize probably what they don't know. And by the third year, they're heading out the door. I know Dr. Mack, that's Dr. McKenzie, uh, in, his, in his, uh, his seminal book, The Spirit of St. Andrews, talks about the holy chestnut of potentially a perpetual links committee or, or green, greens committee. Yeah. I, I guess that, as long as you have the right people involved, should allow some sort of consistency over time. Is that important in terms of the outlook and, 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 and the, the custodianship, if you like, of a, of a, of a, of a golf course? Definitely. Definitely. In many ways, right, and this goes wrong as well, but in many ways, golf courses are best run by autocrats <laughs> because, you know, you can't design by committee and you certainly can't design by a committee that keeps on evolving and changing. And you do find that whether it's a committee or whether it's a captain or whatever, they do want to, to leave a little bit of a legacy and you, you end up where you can have a lot of different opinions from one year to, to the next. So I think the best way to to maintain is the wrong word right the best way to to keep consistent um view on golf courses is to have uh yeah almost perpetual committee but also to be engaging with one architect or one consultant that you trust you know and it's important you pick the right one at the same time and and try and keep consistency with that master plan with that architect over ideally 10 years or more you know um, because you don't want to keep on nibbling away, changing and coming up with different ideas. I guess just in terms of that master plan, I guess that does lead to consistency as long as you're going along the right path and you've selected correctly and you've, you've briefed, you've set the, the I, I guess, the bounds of, of engagement, if you like. Uh, that, that, and I, I guess bringing the members on a journey in terms of in terms of the whole the whole process, in terms of communication and, and, and them understanding why 
it's important perhaps to go back to the future in many ways. Um, how, how do you see communication sort of feeding into that sort of process? Communication into to just bringing the members along, you mean? Uh, Correct. Yeah. Well, uh, communication is key. There's, there's an element of trust key back from the members, but you've got to get that trust in the, in the, in the first place. And you've got to, every, as I said earlier, like everyone thinks they're a golf course architect and everyone's got a dis different opinion and you get some far out there opinions from golf course members. So, you know, there's a, there's a big element of look like any business there's a big element of diplomacy in trying to to get certain people to see the light let's let's put it that way um and different architects have tried and failed with different um methodology some go in you know all barrels or all guns blazing and um get shot down themselves so you know you, you have to be you have to respect the members golf course as well you know you, you don't go in and think you know best immediately you, you need to get to know them get to know the golf course and work with them really and work with the committee and, and work out what actually is best for a golf course uh, and get them once you know or once you believe you know try and get them to, to understand your point of view and then work with their points of view when you mentioned committees there, um, a lot of them, it kind of goes back to my point earlier about the Augusta effect, that like everybody wants their course to look like Augusta or the old course or insert big name here. We all know variety is the spice of life. Is there a danger of every course looking too similar and people not being, I wouldn't say challenged is the right word by it, but just like falling, it falling flat that it misses its effect? Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, a danger of, we'll go back to that word, homogenization, and, and courses ending up looking the same. In fact, you know, I've written, an art, as Shane knows, I've written an article on that lately where I, I've been a little bit disappointed in, I think I've been a little bit disappointed in the last kind of five to ten years of the, the amount of um, work that's being done in Britain and Ireland across our links courses that has the same feel right and you know same look and the same feel and the same kind of uh, i suppose the same kind of style right and, and the same kind of strategic outlook or or lack of strategic outlook and i i just feel that's um yeah it's 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 kind of causing it's it's causing problems there should be every people think links courses they're all the same but links courses are really really different to each other so everyone needs to be treated and every club needs to be treated completely differently. And every club needs a slightly different solution. And there's too much work going on as well. You know, a lot of these courses don't need as much change as, as, as is happening there. So I think there's, there's homogenization and there's, there's potentially too much change in some courses as well. I guess I've certainly heard a number of designers speak about a sense of place. And just following on from the homogenization piece that we spoke about there, would it be safe to say sometimes hazards or bunkers or mounding is put in that maybe doesn't quite fit and perhaps that detracts from a golf course as opposed to actually adds to it? Definitely. Definitely. I think, you know, and that goes back to what I was saying. I think you've got to read the landscape as an architect and you've got to understand 
what fits that landscape best. And what fits the landscape best is what's there already, right? So you almost have to try and put things into a landscape that, that, that shows that there hasn't been a designer there in the first place. Right? If you are going to put bunkers in, you know, make them so subtle that they don't really look designed because things can look contrived and designed. Okay, on links courses, you can have natural edge bunkers, you know, that work best in big dune environments with which have already open sand and blowouts. They don't work so well, natural edge bunkers on flatter links landscapes, which are have all succeeded to grass. There's no open sand anywhere else. They don't, you know, they get they look popped up and a little bit unnatural quite often. Whereas, you know, revetted bunkers, how did they start? So we see revetted bunkers on a lot of golf courses now. Well, they were a man-made intervention, there's no doubt about it. They're not trying to hide the fact that they're a man-made intervention, but they were a man-made intervention because of nature. So what happened is you had these natural sand scrapes and sand blowouts, and they started to erode and they started to fall down. So you take the hell bunker on the 14th of St. Andrews. That was one of the first, where it was such a giant bunker that was collapsing that to, to hold that back, they went into one bay of the bunker and they, they put sod wall in there to, to hold the face back and to retain it. So revetted man-made interventions at least came back from a functional need. You know, they came about from that functional need originally. Now, nowadays they're used all over the place to stop, again, to stop erosion, but they're certainly not natural. But I think if you look at Gil Hans in Castle Stewart, for those listeners that know Castle Stewart, he did a really interesting thing there where he tried to mimic that man-made intervention of nature by building these blowout bunkers, but already putting kind of revetted faces into to certain areas, a kind of hybrid bunker. And in many ways, that was the inspiration that I used in the, the, the renovation down in Strand Hill that we're doing at the, the moment. Um, because I feel, you know, again, we're using natural edges into big dunes and, and blowouts. And then where we've got clean edges and bays where it needs retained, we're using revetted sod wall. And by mixing that up and mixing it up both in the fairway and the green, it works quite nicely, I think. I'll follow up that bunker topic with another bunker topic, and it's the F word and the fairness of bunkers. Now, it's my understanding that bunkers aren't meant to be totally penal, that they're meant to be there for a strategy purpose. What would you feel about people that struggle to get in and out of them, just the difficulty of lies, and should that be the way it is, or should it be as pristine as other parts of the course? Yeah, I, well, I, think, I think if we use the word penal, right, we've got to remind ourselves that there's two uses of that word, right? So there's, when you're talking about strategic golf and strategic bunkers, you're talking about bunker placement on the golf course. So strategy 101 is let's bunker one side of a fairway. And the strategy says, if I go close to that bunker, I have an easy approach into the green. And if I stray far away from it and play a safe tee shot, I have a much harder approach into the green. So penal bunker placements says, well, I'm going to put one bunker on the left-hand side of the fairway, one bunker on the right-hand side of the fairway, and I'm just going to ask you to hit down the middle. Because if you miss the middle, you're going to go in one of my bunkers. So that's the, that's the bunker placement. But when it comes, but penal bunkers themselves, when it comes to fairness, to, to your point, James, is, is really more about, is the bunker too deep to get out of? 
right? So to really, you could take a really hard line on this and say, well, a penal bunker adds the strategy to golf because you really don't want to go into it mm. if you find it difficult to get out of. And you see a lot of penal bunkers and links courses, as you know, as we all know, if you go into a fairway bunker, you're a shot lost because you're really only advancing at 20 or 30 yards out because it's that deep. So I like penal bunkers. I don't like 300 penal bunkers around the golf course. And again, you all, again, to another point you made, you also have to consider who's playing the golf course. And if you're going to put in 100 really deep pot bunkers uh, and 50% of your playing staff or your, your playing members are ladies, or high handicap ladies, juniors, high handicap players, and they can't get out of the, the bunker, then you're not really providing that enjoyment. So there is a balance there. And I think it's important also to balance with, with the fact that it's, it's, it's good to be able to advance the ball 100 yards at least sometimes. You don't always want to just have to splash out to the side. you know. But penal bunkers, very important because they add to the strategy of the, of the way you play the golf hole. Well, speaking of penal strategy and trying to splash out of a bunker, we saw, was it last week or the Yes, last week, Terrell Hatton complaining about the centerline bunker on the final hole of Yaz Links, which was designed by Kyle Phillips very recently. What merits would placing a bunker in the middle of a fairway have? I mean, surely for the average golfer, the safest place to be is in the fairway. So why, why does Terrell feel like he's being penalised for it? Well, Terrell is uh, complaining all the time anyway, isn't he? Like, <laughs> about anything. But look, pros are always complaining about anything they don't see as fair. And that's part of the problem, actually. Part of the problem with golf course design is that we mimic pros too much. And, you know, we listen to them far too much. You know, they're playing a completely different game and they're playing for money. Um, we're playing for fun. We're playing for enjoyment. You know, and we, we want to be challenged in different ways because, you know, if, if we were just challenged in the way we swung a golf club, then we'd all be in trouble. So we need to be challenged mentally as well. Bunkers in the middle of the fairway are perfectly fine, as long as the fairway is wide enough. Um, and again, I go back to Strand Hill, I was just talking about, you know, we've done the same thing at 16 in Strand Hill. I put a little pot bunker in the middle of the fairway, but I've widened the fairway at the same time. So you go left of that, you've got a 35 yard width of fairway to the left of it, and it gives you the harder approach in. Or you've got an 18 yard width of fairway to the right of the bunker, and you've got an easier approach in. So it gives you a good choice, it, it adds to strategy. Most people are going to go left, but then they're going to find they have to approach in over a greenside bunker. Some people are going to take on the, the right-hand line, but they risk failing, you know, more so than if they go left. But they're going to have an easier approach in. So bunkers in the middle of fairway, they're great. You just need to leave enough width um, at least to one side of them. Pretty esoteric question here now, Ali. Uh, can golf design be, and construction be considered art? Yes. It, it's certainly more than building architecture, right? You know, building architecture um, has artistry in it as well, but you're specifically, um, actually, I'll take that back. There's a lot of art in building architecture. I don't want to offend building architects. That's a terrible thing to say, do you know? But <laughs> from a building point of view, you're building to drawings there. I think I go back to my point about, there's a lot of artistry in the field with, with golf design, but Shane, for those who want to pretend it's all art, that's that's not true at all. There's an awful lot of engineering, technical, um, drainage, irrigation, 
um, agronomy and all the rest of it that goes into making a golf course. So there's a huge amount of that. But if you don't bring some level of artistry to it, you're going to have a relatively mundane or, or boring golf course in the end. Into the, the last couple of questions, uh, just a few left. What criteria should the golfer use in assessing the merits of a course's design? What criteria? Well, there's an interesting one because all of the magazines would have you believe that they use criteria, right? Playability, let's mark that out of 10. Condition, let's mark that out of 10. Maybe some of them do, right? But in the end, you have to just throw it all into one big melting pot and say, well, this golf course is better than this golf course for X, Y, and Z reason. It needs to, I, I think what we haven't touched on is the importance of, let's say, the ground game, right? Um, because for me, and I think for everyone, we go back to Lynx golf and being able to use the ground or being having to use the ground because you can't stop balls on greens is hugely important. It brings the undulations into and the run-ins into, into golf courses. And it brings a huge variety of shots. You know Shane, you know James. They're out in Ballybunion, they're out in Royal Dublin, playing little punch shots, little half shots, high flop shots, check shots, all sorts of things, little runners along the ground. You don't really get that inland. So I think that is important. And Shane, I'm kind of forgetting what your original question is. I'm just in <laughs> away here so much. What, what, what was it? Where was it? Point. You're, you're spoofing, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Where was I going? Well, as I said, I could talk forever, you know. But uh, yeah. What criteria should you use in assessing the merits, of course? There you go. I knew there was something there else there, right? So being able it's, to use the ground, being able to use the ground is, is massively important. So it's so variety of shots, right? I don't want to say shot values. It's such a makey-uppy kind of phrase, but it's just the variety and the enjoyment. The times you see yourself having to think on the golf course is a huge part of whether a golf course is um, worthy or not. But I think it has to be playable. So you have to have a playable golf course for all for all types of people. Well, I say all types of people, but in general, it's, it's better if it's for all types of people. You have to provide a variety in holes. You have to provide moments to get the golfer excited. So, you know, you have exciting sights, you have less exciting sights, but golf design can bring very exciting moments to less exciting sites through good green design, you know, through good hazard placement, through good mental challenge. So all of that's really, really important. Conditioning, look, conditioning and maintenance has come on massively in the last 20, 30 years. It's got its place. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of course managers will kill me. Well-conditioned courses are there to complement the design, you know, and to bring better quality golf courses to us but it's not it's not always the be all and end all we don't rate a golf course because it looks like augusta we rate a golf course well because it has a variety of shots and has enjoyable holes and enjoyable moments speaking of ratings i noticed that saint patrick's above ross appended designed by tom dog jumped straight into the golf magazine's top 100 courses in the world how is this possible for such a new course to make such a splash in the global scene? And is a lot of that down to Tom himself? Could you say that because of the land being so lunar, it adds to the dramatics of it? Is, or is, am I missing something here? Um, well, I think, first of all, it, it shows, because it's still developing, it's still growing in, that 
a great golf course doesn't have to be presented like Augusta. That's the first thing. I only opened in July this year. It will take a couple of years to fully mature, but that doesn't matter. We know it's a great golf course already. So, you know, it almost backs up to an extent the point that I was just making. Why does it jump in? Well, I know I know the land quite well because when the Casey's brought it, bought it back in 2012, you know, I was up there looking at the land myself, doing my own routings on, on the golf course as much for fun as anything. Um, they'd already been working with Tom. I knew they had Tom in the back of their mind. It's a great, great, great piece of land divided into three or four different sections. It's got big dunes, natural open sand blowouts. It's got a valley that runs by the, the sea. It's got perfectly kind of micro undulating land. And then it's got a big kind of hill and dune in, in the middle. So it's divided. It's divided perfectly. Why is it rated so high? Because the land's good, really good. Because Tom Doak is really, you know, one of, if not the best at, at what he does. And, you know, I went up there. It was interesting to see the routing that Tom came up with, where it differed to mine. He opened some really good, um, I would say he had a couple of eureka moments to get that jigsaw together. There's nothing out of place. So I know what it looked like beforehand. So they've done enough work to make it the best golf course possible without doing too much. So nothing looks like it's out of place whatsoever. I can't see anything that's contrived or patently man-made. So he's done just the perfect amount. And he's put a huge amount with him and his team of interest into the golf holes, the golf course green sites. And, and as I said earlier, the fairway undulations are fantastic. Perfect mix. So it's, it's absolutely worthy of its top 100 place in the world. But, the, but I'll give you one final thing. I don't mean to take away from it, but Tom is hot property, you know. So Tom has designed about 40 golf courses. They're all excellent. Anything that Tom touches is going to be excellent, but it's also going to be seen that way. A lot of people follow Tom Doak and follow Tom Doak golf courses. So his name doesn't hurt. Let's put it up. Last year and the year before, sorry, I should say, uh, the Irish Open was held on part and courses. And you traditionally think of an Irish Open being on a Lynx course at Port Marnock, Bally Bunyan, and Ballyliffin, which is kind of over the road from St. Patrick's. Do you think there's ever a possibility, even with the relative remoteness of what's up there, that it could host an Irish Open? I don't know, first of all, whether they're looking for that. I know Tom, for instance, in his design philosophy, has never been one for chasing tournaments so he doesn't design of course i'm sure he gets the occasional brief from a, a client that says i want you to design me a tournament golf course i don't think the cases will have asked him for that up there they'll have asked him for design me the best golf course you can and i think that's what tom is well known for and by not thinking about tournament play it kind of frees his mind and and opens that up to him being able to just come up with the best golf course here will it host a tournament will it host an irish open uh, first of all, I can't remember the length, right? Um, and I hate to go to length because, and that's, in fact, it's good that I don't know the length um, because it shows that it's not always the most important thing. But unfortunately, it is important for an Irish Open. I think it's possibly under 7,000 yards. And tip, tip. Shane, do you do you know if it's uh, 7,000 or not? I know you've been up there a bit. But... I think it's about 6,960 or 6,970. Which is probably a little bit short, right, for an Irish Open. I'm sure they could find extended tees if they wanted to. Do they want to? Probably not. The other aspects of it, 
Tom's known for building a lot of undulation, a lot of fun into his green sites. Pros hate that stuff generally. That doesn't make it a bad golf course. It just makes pros wrong. So, so um, with it holding, I don't think he's designed it in mind of holding an Irish Open. Could it? Possibly. Could certainly hold competitions. It's, it's very wide as well. So again, you know, we, we tend to get um, this narrow tunnel vision into the fact that pros need very narrow fairways as well. And who's to argue against that? You know, they're so good at it. You mentioned the the length of St. Patrick's Turn. Us as well, we'd be similar. We'd be sub 7,000 yards. Do you think it should be a case that you just add in yards just for the pros? And when you consider that the pros don't make up 0.1% of the population of golfers, do you think that that's justified or even sustainable? No. I Well, personally, right? It's just my personal opinion. I hate it. I hate the fact that we go in and alter our... Um, courses let's say are uh, you know open courses in great britain for you know four days every 10 years uh, and they're forever tinkering and, and changing things some things are okay some things are needed um, but usually if it's if, if it's just to provide a catalyst for the infrastructure for big tournaments i can understand why small changes are needed but i i, I really dislike design changes or continual tinkering to try and bring a pro score back closer to par rather than minus 10 or minus 11. It, it doesn't usually work anyway. Um, and then adding tees, as we see in the old course in St Andrews, they've added tees for the 17th over in the driving range, for the 14th over in the Eden course. For the second, they've got back tee on the, the Himalayas, ladies putting green. You know, so they've got a whole bunch of tees that they've had to put off the golf course just so that the pros can keep on playing there. Now, contradicting myself, I think it's St Andrews is probably the only thing they could do, and I'd hate to see the open leaves in Andrews because it's so iconic. So I think they do need to keep on playing it there. But eventually, as in Prestwick, some golf courses just become too small for the developing game for professional golf, and they slide back into the, the shadows of amateur golf, I think. Is there any way around that whatsoever? I don't think there should be because we can't keep on spending money and building bigger. Well, maybe we can build bigger golf courses, right? But they cost more to build, they cost more to maintain. But I wouldn't go um, bastardizing, let's say, our uh, our existing golf courses. We've got some golf courses out there that are naturally suited to tournament play. Take Port Marnie, for instance. You know, it's 7450 off the back. It's got a long history of it. You don't really need to do anything at Port Marnie for tournament play. And there's other ones out there as well. We've seen... Port Rush made change for infra infrastructure. Now it's made that change and got rid of the 17th, 18th. You don't need to do much there. Bally Bunyan did well, though, James. I suppose back in the time, you know, the last time Bally Bunyan held the Irish Open, it wasn't a long golf course and it held up nicely. But the game's changed again since then, I suppose. Yeah. When what's funny is when you think about what the winning score was that day, bear in mind there were two or three black, black cam days and it still came out at 14 under. Yeah. So yeah. like it's it it didn't get overwhelmed. It showed its teeth on the Sunday. Even when the Irish closed, which would be one of the top amateur um, competitions in Ireland, when that was played, the first two days were stroke play. And even with those boys, and like they're elite level amateurs who can hit at a country mile, two rounds of stroke play, it was nine under, followed by two under. Which shows like a course like that can defend itself even it, it with, without the length. I think it also shows the greatness of Bally Bunyan, right? Because without the length, okay, so it depends. Sometimes it depends on wind, but you said you had flat, calm days there for a couple. But it shows how much more challenge is in Bally Bunyan around the green sites. It's a great 
golf course sort of approaches. You know, I think the second shot, mm. the Valley Bunyan greens are, are, are brilliant and it really can defend itself. But, you know, for courses that aren't as good as Valley Bunyan or haven't got as many natural features, you know, unfortunately for professional golf, it tends to rely on, on length because the only other way to do it is to supersonic up green designs and um, protection around greens and then the pros moan that it's unfair or contrived in, in that. So they can't, you know, they, in some ways they want it. They want their cake and, and eating it. And they, <laughs> length is, is usually, unfortunately, the almost the easiest way to, to start protecting golf courses for them. So. How, how about ground conditionality in terms of firm and fast? And, and, and I, I guess trying to, if you look at the likes of well, three courses, uh, the old courses we mentioned, uh, Royal Melbourne, which obviously would be right up there in terms of the the, the rankings worldwide, um, and Augusta. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, Sebi Ballesteros is the only golfer, pro golfer, that's actually won tournaments on all three golf courses. I guess the interesting link there is Alistair McKenzie, who obviously would have been involved in, in all three designs, or certainly, beg your pardon, the, the old course, he was consulting architect, but it was his favourite golf course, and it was yeah. essentially yeah. Where, 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 where his design ideas blossom from should we say in many ways and i guess that the characteristic of of the three golf courses is that you can be a little bit wild but you have a chance but it's a very small chance and it actually gives you an opportunity to take a shot on and if you if you succeed happy days it's an unbelievable golf shot but it will bite you but i guess the commonality there is royal melbourne is firm and fast an ideal augusta would be firm and fast it probably isn't anymore and St. Andrews probably plays its best when it is firm and fast. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're probably right, Augusta. I mean, I haven't been to Augusta personally, but uh, obviously we all know the green sites and the fastness of the green sites protect it very much so. But there's great strategy in there as well, you know, to, to your point from Mackenzie. Firm and fast is a huge protector for 99% of golfers. And you should say for 100% of golfers. Like, but for, for, you know, amateurs, for low amateurs, for hackers like myself, Firm and fast is defining the way that you play around a golf course because I can't stop the ball on, I can't stop the ball on greens, you know, um, as I fly them in. For pros, they're becoming so good that, to my point earlier, I think they can, can tend to stop the ball almost anywhere unless you really have built significant strategy or significant protection into your your green site. So. That's, you know, that's where that becomes important. And a lot of the Golden Age courses have that. And, and that's why they are so good. But even they are getting overpowered these days by the, the modern day pro, unfortunately. Um, but they're still relevant to 99.9% of us, as, as I said earlier. So are you saying that the that the RNA and the USGA really should do something about a professional ball or should, should we roll the ball back for everybody? Well, I think that's the easiest one, isn't there's, it? There's, there, there's the grenade in the room, huh? <laughs> yeah. Pew, pew. <laughs> well, I think that's the easy one, isn't it? I don't know. Look, I'm, I think there's been a lot of discussion about if people are for bifurcation. So bifurcation obviously means having a different ball for professionals versus amateurs. Some people are against it because they feel it, it creates two different games. I think the the easy option is to roll the ball back, you know, because it's a lot easier than than keeping on building eight thousand yard golf courses or you know the other options that are are there. Just bringing the ball back by ten percent is would make the world a difference. So to that extent, I I think I enjoy kind of watching the professional ladies. You go and watch them ch- challenge our um, 
our main links courses, go and watch them when they play in the old course. And suddenly they are hitting the balls a distance, i.e. less than the male pros, where they really having to think their way around the golf course much more rather than just overpowering it. So, you know, if you if you brought that back to the males and and, and brought it back 10 or 15%, then I think it brings a lot more strategy and thought back into our golf courses. Well, I think we're going to see that. I know over the weekend we had the AT&T Pro-Am. The Ladies US Open is set to be at Pebble this year, I believe. So what do you think is going to be like, to alluding to your point there, what you see being the main difference between the styles of play? I mean... We're so used to seeing on a Sunday night when we tune in high bombs, quote unquote, and high wedges. How do the ladies, um, how do ladies games differentiate from the men's and what impact does it have on setting up a course for their tournament? Well, I'm not, I'm probably not the best person to answer this, James, not being, you know, not being a, a, a coach or a teacher uh, myself, but um, I certainly know when it comes to, to, to length that they're shorter and it brings it certainly brings a lot more mental thought and we all know that bryson's way of winning at the moment is just to overpower a golf course hit as far as he can bomb and gouge i guess and then just gouge it onto the green whereas i see the most strategic golf courses uh, meaning the most to the slightly shorter hitters it's terrible to see the way that the male pro golf has just become this hit it as far as you can and then hack it onto the green you know I say hack onto green, but gouge onto green because you've got such a short mm. arm in. So. Well, speaking of professional golfers, many of them have turned their hand to golf design. Some with more success than others. Like we have, for example, our Jack Nicholas designs, uh, Killeen Castle and Mount Juliet. We have Arnold Palmer's Delight in Tralee. Uh, surely when you're a pro, it gives you all the tools you need to be a successful designer. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that at all. I think, first of all, we go back to, there has to be a, a love of golf courses and intuitive understanding of it. And then going back right to what we talked about at the beginning, yeah, I think it is helpful as a golf designer if you've played golf to a certain level. But it's amazing sometimes seeing how pros just can't think outside of their own level, which again, you know, is only... 0.1% of people and they can't really relate the game to the to the common player or the or the shorter hitter so I think doesn't really give you all the tools at all um, and there are varying degrees of success from professional golfers who have turned their hands to golf course I think the first thing you have to realize is being a good golf course designer or golf course artist it takes time the old 10,000 hours of um <laughs> learning something before you become can become a maths rat and a lot of the golfers the pro golfers that have turned to golf course design it's a part-time hobby for them to be honest with you you get many different levels of professional golfers in i could go through the different levels if you want some are absolutely invested and excellent and some of the best designers in the business and some are complete masts mastheads who don't know their way to the first tee on opening day you know and, and then you get everything in between is it a case of like some people have ghost writers would that be the case with some professional golfers that lend their names to courses oh definitely definitely a little bit less so i think in the last few years and i don't, I don't want to go into well I don't, I don't really mind but i don't really want to go into particular names but you know there are certainly Let's look at it three ways, right? There are there are the, the professional golfers that are 
absolutely interested in, in it, spend most of their time in golf course design now since they've retired, um, have an intuitive understanding, usually have teamed up, let's take Bill Crenshaw, right? usually have teamed up with someone with a, a similar aesthetic, similar understanding, and a, a good knowledge, and a, already a golf course architect, Bill Crenshaw, Cool and Crenshaw, one of the best design firms in the company today, uh, in the in the world today. Obviously, the guy knows what he's talking about, right? Then you have the guys in the middle, right? The guys in the middle who are still involved in this, uh, still involved, still interested. They're involved enough to set up their own company. They usually, therefore, then hire a professional architect or two underneath them. They do most of the work, but these guys are still there to direct their company, to give conceptual advice, to be involved. So there's a, quite a few golf course pros like that. And then there's the other end we just talked about, right, where they're completely a ghostwriter and they're only put in as a name to try and sell real estate or whatever. And some of them literally, you know, some of them literally have had zero to do with the golf course whatsoever. They've turned up at the uh, opening shoot when the golf course is announced and you see them standing in the back of a Land Rover pointing into the distance with a map in their hand. Um, you know, <laughs> so that's shot number one. Um, and shot number two, maybe somewhere through the construction, maybe not. Uh, and then they turn up on opening day. And really, I, I've known of pros that haven't known their way to the first tee. They haven't a clue about the golf course. So well, surely that... Surely that's disingenuous, Ali. Surely this can't be happening. Uh, okay, maybe I've said too much. <laughs> no, there are one or two. I, I, I've seen a little less of that lately, actually, to be absolutely honest with you. You know, because, uh, but look, I go back to my point. You know, when you see a professional golfer who is still playing professional golf every week, who is still, who has, let's say, got other business interests and for you to believe that he's put all of the work into building a golf course or designing a golf course, like he, he clearly hasn't, you know, mm. got someone working for him or ghosting for him. Well, I have a question, Ali. For any budding Tom Doak or Gil Hans out there, what advice would you give them to make their first tentative steps towards a career in golf design? It's it's a difficult business to get into, right? So I don't want to... I don't want to put people off, but they really do have to be committed and there's different ways of doing it. I think the first way to, well, the first thing you have to say is you have to be willing to travel and you have to be putting it as your number one priority, right? So you're going to get nowhere if you don't travel. And I say that because I think probably the easiest way, if there is such a thing as an easy way, is to try and get yourself tagged to a design shape build team who've got a few people in the field building a golf course who are willing to give you a chance or a little bit of help to go in there and start off with the menial jobs but to learn how a golf course gets built from from beginning to end there are very very few jobs over the last number of years certainly since the crash where office-based golf architects are looking for another office-based golf architect. The most you'll get from that is they, they tend to look for CAD monkeys, let's say, or, or people who are good on the IT side. So that is another way into it. Become very good at visualization, become very good, good way, and offer, your, offer a service to professional golf course architects that they can't do themselves. And you could maybe get into an office that way. But I think the best way, uh, to be honest, is be willing to travel, and to try and connect yourself, show your keenness to some of the existing architects out there, you know, put your hand in the air and try and get out there and try and get into the field with them. The traditional way was landscape architecture. 
Uh, and I, I guess that's still a methodology and it's definitely no harm. You know, if you're absolutely obsessed with it and you want to do it and you're still young enough and you want to go to college, landscape architecture degree, and then go and get your hands dirty. That's the best way to do it. So you're Perfect. not advocating for anyone trudging through the rain with two bags in their back caddying, no? <laughs> and do it as well uh, Dave, like, you, you need to be phoning up Tom and saying I'm going to come and work on your next project and I'll you know it's it, unfortunately it's like most things you, you just have to get stuck in and um, it's not the kind of job that you're just going to come out of college and, and be awarded a, a graduate position with a, a golf design firm there's not enough of them around and there's too many people wanting to do it but it doesn't mean you can't get into it you just need to be you just need to be keen and and, and really just take an interest and, and start chasing down any opportunity you see. I'm going to shake here just a follow-up question, Ali. Uh, obviously, with the uh, the ongoing work at Strand Hill and uh, probably a little bit, little bit more work later on in the year in Cairn, if anybody was out there and wanted to uh, touch base with you and give you give you some free labouring, how, how do they best get in touch with you? <laughs> Through you, maybe, Shane. I don't know. <laughs> um, drop, me a, drop me a mail. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing some construction work at Strand Hill at the moment. We're just back from there where we were just doing some tea work and we'll hopefully do some more later on in the year. Carn, it'll be good get, to get back to Carn because since we opened the new nine back in 2013, they've now started to integrate that as part of the Wild Atlantic Dunes course into to the main 18. It does need a little bit of work still to, to just get some of the logistics around right and some of the flow now they've got the new 18. So we're back there. Uh, in the in the autumn to to do some major work around the first tees and all three nines. We all look. There's a I guess there's a there's a, a tipping point, Shane, where you don't want thirty people on site with you who do, who are just waiting for you to tell them what to do. You know, so you need the right size team. But the right size team always comes with one or two people that are are willing to volunteer for a couple of weeks and and get stuck in. So how do they get in touch with me? Well, I'm not on social media, but uh, you know, you can, you can always. Uh, I think the best way is to drop a note through yourself, Shane, if that's okay for you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be your I'll be your construction secretary. So, <laughs> thanks. Listen, many many thanks, Dolly, for sharing his knowledge. But it's obviously for James for his uh, his his company and his questions. Uh, we'll be sure to lean on both of you again. Uh, to everyone that tuned in, many thanks. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends on the Firm and Fast Podcast Adventure. Until the next time, happy golfing. Mm-hmm.